Welcome to Hashtag Resilience. This is Watson Jordan. I lead the Resilience Initiative, where we research and promote resilience from around the globe and back to you, our listeners. Our big idea, we can develop resilience. Our promise, we will show you how with inspirational stories and straightforward ideas. Learn more about us at www.hashtagresilience.com. That's all one word. Make sure to check out our courses on Udemy, like 1010 Finance, and build resilience with the 531 plan. Look out for our new book, Resilience, How the COVID-19 Pandemic Made Us Wiser and Stronger. Thank you for listening and enjoy the show. Welcome to the Resilience Initiative. This is Watson Jordan, and today I'm joined by Dr. Melissa Booth, PhD, with the Science Communicator, and she has the fantastic job of explaining science to people in a way that makes it more meaningful to them. So welcome to Hashtag Resilience, Melissa. Glad you're here. Tell us a little bit about yourself and what you're excited about. Thanks, Jordan. I'm really happy to be here. I'm glad that you asked me. Um, I'm excited about science. Um, science excites me, and it helps me to understand the world. It helps me to live a better life. It helps me make really good choices, like should I get the vaccine or not? Should I buy organic vegetables or not? Should I get enough sleep? Things like that. Seems like should I get enough sleep is the easiest question of those three. <laughs> yes, absolutely. So I believe that Uh, we haven't done a great job of communicating science to the public in ways that they can understand and use in their everyday lives. And so as a scientist, I recognized that I was weak in that area, so I started getting a lot of training, and I recognized that the arts had a Mm. lot of ability to communicate to people in ways that they understand and connect with and remember. Whereas science usually talks in this very objective way, distanced from the science in a hu- from a human The sense. magical one-two punch of cognition and retention. Exactly, exactly. And so I took some acting classes, and then I took some writing classes, and I actually started off college with a choir scholarship. So this could be Renaissance woman. Yes. Nice. Yes. I love that. Yeah. So I just kind of returned to my dance background, my piano playing, my guitar, my singing, and looking inside myself for ways that communication can happen beyond what we know as science communication today. And I discovered that Alan Alda has a boot camp for scientists and I got excited. Alan Alda, from the MASH. actor yes. who was in MASH. Yes, yes. He actually has a passion for science communication. And God bless him. Good backstory there. He, was, he helped found the first television that covered science in the United States with Scientific American um, back in the early 70s. And then he got the role on MASH and so went another direction. But in his retirement, he's come back around to what he started with long, long ago. I did not know that. Yeah. So I got accepted to go to the science boot camp training. It was one of the hardest things I've done in my life, but I excelled there. What was the... Because you have a PhD, so you've done things that people would think are challenging. So what was uniquely challenging about 
Was it a vulnerability thing? It's a vulnerability So Brene thing. Brown would be going, yes yes, 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 yes. You know, but they had people from PBS and other sort of television networks and radio networks, and they had a lot of actors and acting coaches, and then a lot of your scientific peers, but not, not necessarily ones that you know, because mm-hmm. I was paired with someone who ran the Kepler telescope from NASA, a German guy, and mm. he was my partner for the process. Um, they put you under cameras and had a journalist interviewing you and you got no time whatsoever. And then they put the interview up on a screen and everybody critiqued it right then and there. And so it was just very vulnerable for me anyway. I cried multiple times. That sounds like such a great experience in so many things now. And it's so easy. They'll just film it and watch it. Yeah. Film it and watch it. And peer review, as an educator, peer review is super powerful. Yes. And it's proximate to the assessment. So lots of times you take an assessment, an exam, and you get the grade back four weeks from now. Right. Which means the payload for learning for the assessment was almost nothing. Right. But peer review is instant. Yes. So much more retention, much yes. more insight. Yes. Good for you. Yeah. Wow. It was really, really um, life-changing. And I already had started on a path for teaching communicating science and learning more about communicating science. I had uh, discovered that I really want to communicate science through fiction because I recognize that there's two kinds of future fiction. There's far future fiction and near future fiction. And in far future fiction, we are a species that travels the galaxy. We go from planet to planet. Boldly going where no one has gone before. No one has gone before, like Star Trek or or some of these other shows. But in near future fiction, we're totally destroyed. You know, Think the Road by Cormac McCarthy. (gasps) You know, devastated. It's always apocalyptic. It's always terrible. A a beautifully written book. Beautifully written book. I think that part of the tension was it was so beautifully written. And it's an apocalyptic tale of fatherhood. Yes, the worst apocalyptic tale. But there are so there's so much dystopia. There's so much apocalypse, and I couldn't bring it together. That created a cognitive dissonance for me. Like, how is our near future going to be destroyed, and how are we going to get to that far future where we're technologically advanced, peaceful species, poverty's over, we're, we're bringing ourselves to the galaxy in a good way. Right, that doesn't jive. We can't tell this one story to ourselves right. about how we're going to die right. and have this other story about ourselves about how we're going to succeed. And so I realized... On a timeline, that's an F. It's an F, yes, <laughs> totally, completely. And I thought, you know what, this is where science communication comes in. We need to be looking at what is actually happening. What is the science telling us that's happening about our planet, about our air, about our health, about water. our longevity, about our water, everything that supports us? And what is science telling us about technology and the future? And again, in a way where science isn't, an, isn't a hammer, uh-huh. it's glasses so often are a great metaphor. It's something new. That enhances our ability to see what is there. Yes. So it's not making something up. No, that's perfect. Yes. Good metaphor. Glad the, I'm glad that was recorded. That's great. I um, I often use that liberally and often. Yeah. Metaphor is is a dangerous game in science because a lot of times the translation from one 
uh, thing to another isn't true in science, and it's very careful to keep it true. But the glass... That must be a point of tension in what you do, because as you try to make it more palatable, easier for consumption, the natural thing is to kind of go, it's like this, which... It makes total sense, but it better be a one-to-one-to-one-to-one-to-one like this and not it's pretty much like this. Exactly. Or it's sort of like this. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, exactly. So at the Resilience Initiative, we talk a lot about resilience. And when I met you, you were giving a talk that I really enjoyed uh, that involved the concept of resilience. Can you talk a little bit about that? and science, and we can give a little plug for Asheville, but um, kind of where you see resilience existing in science, and that's a good example. Could you talk a little bit about that? Absolutely. So the talk that I was giving uh, when you met me was about climate migration and how the coming climate change that is already upon us is resulting in sea level rise. And so many coastal communities in the United States are going to need to relocate because it will not be livable due to incoming tides, um, saltwater intrusion into the fresh water that's available in those locations, and hurricanes and terrible storms. So sea level and what we think of as negative weather events. Yes, Yes. those are increasing as we move forward into this century. Is that true for all of them? So that's true for typhoons and hurricanes and anything that's kind of ocean-based? Yes, The hydrological cycle is what's being shifted. So as certain areas of the planet warm up more, there's more evaporation. Other areas are cooling down. So it's changing the way water vapor moves around the planet, and that's changing the weather cycle. We're also seeing currents in the ocean slow down or speed up based on salinity. So in that's the amount of salt in the water. So the Gulf Stream would be impacted because... Exactly. If it stays fresh water, it's a constant, and what is around it is shifting. Yes, and so the the ice that's melting off of Greenland is putting in a lot of fresh water, so that's dropping the salinity, which is slowing down the current a bit. And so the slower the current goes, the slower the wind blows, et cetera, et cetera, that changes how the water is moved around the planet. So it's really the hydrological cycle that's changing when we think of climate change. So how we become resilient is knowing that this is happening. Just recognizing that there is a temperature change happening, sea level rise is happening on the coast, let's get people moved to places that are not going to be affected by this. Let's plan ahead. Let's, like say for the city of Asheville that is expected to receive a lot of these migrants, let's look at how many housing units we need, how much restaurants, what sort of a water supply will we need, what sort of sewage supply will we need, how do we accommodate the incoming immigrants from coastal New Orleans, coastal Florida, coastal Georgia, coastal Virginia, coastal North Carolina. Now, in in the world where we live in now, where you can get a lot of information, people might make a real decision about going somewhere else, about, I want to live there. Yes. It seems like in a lot of the world, there would be a point where they would go, it's flooding 12 times a year now, we're moving inland. Yes. And they would just move inland for a while. So I would think there would be a wave of people just moving away from the edge. Yes. But you say that there are bigger trends of people 
really looking at this and making a decision about, I want to live there. Yes, yes. And that would probably be an increasing, that the amount of the pie chart that's that type of decision, the volume for the pie chart will go up. Steadily. And you'd think that would inch forward yes. a little bit, but there would still be a lot of... Yes. So th- cities like Buffalo, uh, New York, uh, Duluth, Cincinnati. You mentioned that top 10 list. Cleveland, yes. These cities that are sort of rust belt are experiencing a renaissance now because they're advertising themselves as places to relocate. You know, if you're in California and you're enduring poor air quality and fires, move up here. Bring your jobs up here. So kind of a handful, like five variables, air quality would be one. Yes. I guess temperature yes. would be one water quality and availability. Correct. Is that the same thing or do we think of that as two different They're things? They're two different things. Two different things. So availability and quality. Yes. Is there kind of a fifth that would be easy for people to remember? Storms. So get oh. away from violent weather. Oh, right. Yes. Kind of get away from violent weather, weather that we think of as yeah. negative. Yes. Um, that's such a fascinating list. Most of them you kind of go, well, everybody would like air quality. Everybody yes. would like all of those. Exactly. So why don't we slow down the, the emission of CO2? That would be fabulous. Then we could lessen some of these effects. However, there's already some built into the system that was already bound to happen before we figured out that CO2 was resulting in this uh, warming of the planet. So there will be some consequences, sea level rise being one of them, and more violent storms. And so there will be some migration. And again, in my world as an educator... Education deals often, whether it wants to or not, with the idea of a natural consequence. Yes. Yes. So it's not a made-up, punitive kind of piece. It's, well, then you can't read as well. Right. So a consequence of that is anything that your understanding benefits by reading is harder. Right. Yeah. It's not punitive. It just is. So it's hotter. Yes. So things are frozen, things are melting. Yes, exactly. So, when you think of those handful, that five, those five things, yeah. those would make things resilient. So, you mentioned individual cities, but it seems like being inland mm-hmm. a bit. Yes. I wonder what would be a common denominator for water supply. Freshwater supply, um, you know, rainfall. Because Arizona would seem to be a good place, but you wonder how much water they have. They don't have enough water. The Colorado River has already tapped out, and there are still people. And it's in the there. desert. Yes. So yes. That's and that's not a new. Yes. It's been the desert for. Right. So they're reliant on the Colorado River and groundwater, water that's underneath the ground. Groundwater is being depleted. That is takes thousands of years to be replenished. So that's not going to be there once it's used up. And the Colorado River has a limited usage, and it's being used throughout its meandering to Mexico. Is this type of thing, wondering, sometimes it's good to look at the globe to kind of put it out and kind of go, well, there's the equator. Is there kind of a sweet spot that's kind of moving north? It's moving north. Huh. Yep. And you see I have a hydrological map of the United States. On my wall, and you can see where there's a lot of tributaries on the mm-hmm. eastern side. Yep. And if you look at the western side of the 
continent, there's far less distribution of water. It is a great map. Yeah. So that's what reminds me every day. Listeners, I'm going to take a picture of this map, and we'll put it on Instagram, so that'll be fun to see. Um, Fascinating. So let's take a little turn. So we talked a little bit before about our 5-3-1 plan, just for foundational resilience. So a fun question to ask is, of those three things, kind of your inner circle or communities or core belief, which one lately have you been leaning on more? And if there's a fun story about that, all the better. Oh, gosh. This is such a great question because I'd like to talk about all three, but I'll choose one. Um, you can talk about all three. You just have to talk way faster. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, I would say the five people. So the one I've been leaning on the most is my husband. We have been in this little house together throughout the pandemic. He's been working downstairs. I've been working upstairs. Both of us doing very well with our goals and businesses despite the pandemic. We lost family um, to the the pandemic. Mm. We both had health challenges during the pandemic, Um, but he's been my rock, Mm. and I hope that I've been his. we also have some family in town um, that were part of our pod, right. our COVID bubble, and we relied on them heavily to help us out when we needed it um, during the pandemic. So we've relied on them. Did y'all have any planned interactions? So some people have talked about we established a pod. These are the six people that yes. we're going to yes. be comfortable being with and hug and have. Yes. And they would kind of go, and we're going to have dinner every Sunday night or yes. any planned things like that? We didn't that? have anything that was scheduled like that. We did plan things, but we always talked to each other beforehand and let each other know what exposures we'd had. And we did everything outside. And Those are really reasonable kind of inside. Yes. want to get the benefit. But, yeah. And there's nothing magic about outside or inside, but outside's better. Yes. And it's easy. Yes. Yes. Outside good. Yeah. Nice. And then uh, my best friend in town, um, April, she and I talked on the phone regularly. Telephone, telephone, or Zoom? Telephone, telephone. Yes, I'm a proponent of telephone, telephone. Yes. And we met occasionally in outdoor settings during the pandemic. And then my... I always had breakfast with my friend Frank during the whole pandemic. We would figure out a way to... Absolutely. That was we both kind of were comfortable with. That was... Yeah. And then my other best friend from college and I reconnected. We weren't staying in regular touch. We were seeing each other once in a while. The way life is. We decided the Zoom thing just was so ripe for a a reconnection that we have a standing meeting that we're keeping now. Nice. Um, Every Thursday afternoon at 4, we meet for two hours and we just talk and have a glass of wine and unload and we were both scientists so we can both talk solve about all the world's problems it's nice whatever how we're feeling now where'd you go to college oklahoma state nice yes i think y'all in the upcoming nba draft y'all have a player who's ranked very highly oh great yeah that's terrific so good so your inner circle nice yeah my okay. inner circle yes great friends and family so if you were going to talk about a second one of those three, since we're doing great on time, what would the second one be? Um, a core belief. Oh, great. Yeah. My core belief is that a functioning democracy depends on science literacy. 
That's nice. my core belief. I do not believe that we can move forward with the technology and challenges that we have ahead of us if most of our society isn't aware of how to evaluate the information that's coming front in front of them. So my belief isn't that you should know how many rotations the sun makes in a century or, you know, what the photosynthetic rate of a flower is. My contention is that you need to understand how to critically think about the scientific information that comes in front of you in the news. So journalists have... You know, that's a companion piece yes. to internet literacy. Exactly. Where I, I need to remember just because something's in my feed doesn't mean I should make life's biggest decisions on that piece of information. Absolutely. Because my feed is engineered to delight me. Absolutely. Which is like going, a good diet must be apple pie and what would mine be? Mm, I feel a lot of apple pie. Mm. Um, yeah, I hear <laughs> and you. And really good vanilla ice cream. Yeah. Well, it tastes good. Yeah. I should eat this all the time because it, it tastes good. good. Yeah, yeah, so that's, a, you know, yeah. so understandable. Such a flawed model. Yes. That is great. Yeah, so and that aligns great. tightly with your work. Yes. Yes. That must be very satisfying. Yes, and I, I think I took a turn that most scientists wouldn't take. I had the you know, sweet job, an academic position, headed for tenure position, and was getting research grants and succeeding. But I recognized that I was not making a contribution to society at the level that I could. Mm. And that if I was willing to take a risk and step outside of academic research and a solid salary and try something different, that I might make a larger impact. So here's a fun question. So that's a great moment in where your life can suddenly become even more meaningful. But you mentioned risk, and I don't know if it was in your talk, but recently, either something I read talked about the difference between risk and gamble, hmm. which I thought, that's kind of an interesting distinction. It is. What did they say about it? Well, they talked about gambling is exactly that. There's no, it's rolling the dice. It's not, there's no meaning behind aside from maybe desperation for if I win the lottery, I can. Right. But risk is informed. Yes. And doesn't have to be constantly calculated, but there's some awareness. Yes. I'm going to work for myself. Absolutely. The upside is increased satisfaction, and the risk would be losing the perception of a safe financial piece. Absolutely. Which I'm here to tell you is a perception. Yes. So. Yes, and I, but I, will find, I did find it difficult in the first years because not only did I lose the financial security perception, I lost the identity perception. Yep. So I walked into a room and knew who I was and what to say. Exactly. Now, what, what was your say. doctorate in? Um, microbiology and molecular genetics. I did a dual PhD program uh, bringing those two disciplines together. Fantastic. So, 
and I studied. That um, sounds very impressive. So. It, it was impressive at the time. Um, <laughs> I was studying gene expression uh, in marine microbes, so looking at how microbes repair their DNA in the ocean and how they obtain food. That would be an interesting repair. It's a yes. fascinating, important part of resilience. Yes. Um, because when we, in the classic, take a spill, you get up and you keep going. You know, how much momentum can you have that's not destructive so you don't want to go a million miles an hour? But momentum really helps us. So Yes. Huh, so repaired. I found that uh, many marine microbes are incredibly resilient. They were the first evolved. They will be the last extinct. Nice. They meant, what is it? Uh, little insects are bad. So, <laughs> or are really great. Yeah. So the next question, we just published our book, Resilience, How the COVID-19 Pandemic Made Us Wiser and Stronger. It was a collection of essays. It is a collection of essays from around the world, from men and women, young and old, geographically. Super, much more fun to collect than the essays that I wrote. But if you were writing an essay for that, mm. what would it be? What would, the, what would be a fun title for your essay? What would be a... Well, I think of the many essays I would like to write, again, not many answers. <laughs> the world um, of yes. lots of ideas. Yes. Good for you. Yes. That's a great trait. I hope so. Sometimes it's, it's a heavy. It's, I come in here and I'm like, <laughs> I, I out should, of breath. It's yes. one to be managed, but yes. it's, uh, yeah. <laughs> yes. So I would write an essay called Dropping Barriers about the way the vaccine was made. Hmm. And a lot of the reason the vaccine was able to be created and tested as quickly as it was, was because government barriers on sharing science and publishing barriers on publishing science were completely dropped right at the beginning. And so all of a sudden, I could get every article as a scientist huh. from every journal that was about the SARS-CoV virus or anything that was happening relating to the pandemic. All paywalls were dropped, all science was shared, and governments that usually have some control on their government labs, giving out research to other government labs, that was dropped for many countries, including the U.S., Germany, Japan, and even China. Wow. And so there was a lot of sharing of information that just wasn't happening before, and I think that I hope, I hope that that continues into the future for important work surrounding earth health and human health. So if you're the other side of the chair on that and you go, no, barriers are good, what would be the three reasons people would say barriers are good? Because you hear that and you kind of go, yeah, well, get rid of the barriers. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. But, there, but the barriers, right. must, there must have been a reason or a thought about a barrier should be there right? because of... I don't know. Security reasons, right. profit reasons. Um, you know, publishers have to pay to publish their work. They have to pay their staff and for their digital um, platforms and, you know, internet security and all of that sort of stuff that has to be paid for. Yeah. And so libraries pay for journal subscriptions, and, and if they don't have those subscriptions coming in, they can't continue to publish. And so this is how the scientific world has been operating for a hundred years. There is already a lot of talk about open access science and there are some journals online such as the Public Library of Science where scientists are choosing to publish in those 
because they are free. They are using a new monetary model. Um, so I think that you're going to see more of that transition happening in the future. Yeah. Oh, so I interrupted you, which is a horrible habit, but I wonder how much of that, if the U.S. was the only thing that existed, okay. how, how many barriers do we have internally? I wouldn't say we have that many barriers. So it's more of a global, yes. international, yes. where the barriers you're talking about And are. I would say in the United States, the barriers are more inefficiencies. That, <laughs> you know, <laughs> Bingo! Um, where there's this going on over here at this agency, and that going on over here at this institute, mm -hmm. and this going over here in academia, and this going on in public health. And they're not really talking to each other or using the same systems. And so there was a sort of a fumbling that was going on because their forms are different and their measures are different and their, you know, assays are different. And there was a lot of having to figure that out and find people to be go-betweens. That's inefficient. Boy, it is tough. But I have some real empathy for if you're making decisions nationally. Yeah. It's just hard to have a lot of Absolutely. insight into statewide or regional or so. Yes, and I, 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 I can see how yes. that would be hard to have perfect information. But boy, the tools are out there for to really make some headway. Absolutely, we do need some things to be very centralized and very standardized, yeah. and I think that's what we discovered. And there needs to be freedom of thought and diversity in other areas that maybe there wasn't before. And so I think that that's kind of being sussed out. This was. A test for us. Um, I'm sad that a lot of people have to lose their lives, including friends and family. However, I strongly feel that to be a more resilient country after learning this, that we should be more regional in our way of thinking, more watershed-based. Like, wherever there's water... You mean literally watershed? I mean literally watershed-based, because that is where the weather and the lifestyle and the culture of people really exists. So you have hmm. the sort of Northeast, the Southeast, the Southwest, the West, the Northwest. These are different cultures. They operate differently, and they should operate differently. Their weather is different. Their geography is different. Their water is different. Their, Their air flows are different. different. Their economies are different. Their values are different. The ancestry of people that live there is, is different. I think we should respect that more. I think we sort of try to homogenize the whole thing with our policies, and maybe we need to get a little more regional in our focus to be more resilient. I think there's an upside to that, kind of my ongoing, if I was king and I could snap my fingers. And truth be told, don't have perfect information on this. But I think the educational needs of Alaska... Yes. are different than the educational needs of Rhode Island. Yes, or Mississippi. I just think they are. Yes. So having the education system geared for the culture, for the economy, for the water, for the is sensible right. to me. The um, weather, the geography, exactly. Yeah, so... Well, here's to our public servants getting that wider than they've ever done before. So we're now going to, that was a great answer. Thank you very much. We're going to go to our quick strike round and have a surprise. I remember the new fourth quick strike question. Okay. What's the biggest problem we have? <laughs> and it can't be, you can say push, which is okay, 
But it really is not, oh, I think it's these three. What's the biggest problem we have? Lack of science or literacy. There you go. Perfect. So what's the best advice you've ever received? To go for it. Go for it. Good. What book are you reading now? The Ministry of the Future. Who wrote that? Kim Stanley Robinson. It's a new book. We will drop that in the episode notes. And when you need to get going, what music do you listen to? Pop. Anything more specific? So Bob Seger is my answer, so you can't say Bob Seger. Duran Duran. Nice. Very nice. I think, you know, there's no getting going is the object of the exercise, so there can't be any judgment about the fuel. Well, this has been a delight, and thank you very much. We'll make sure to put your information in the episode notes, but just to be clear, I've been with Dr. Melissa Booth, Ph.D., and if you Google the science communicator, that's where you'll find her. And that's, craftily enough, at the science communicator, all one word, dot com. Thank you. And at the end, we say goodbye, listeners. Goodbye, listeners. Thank you for listening to Hashtag Resilience with Watson Jordan. Please reach out to me and let me know what you think. If you like our show, please subscribe, leave a rating, write a review. The episode notes include your main information about the show. Please take a look. We're available for speaking and facilitating, in addition to our researching, interviewing, and writing. Learn more about our work on resilience at hashtagresilience.com. Spread the word.